Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. This is COVID pandemic recording, so you may hear the odd weird noise like crows or my neighbor's kids or a lot of times my guest's kids and sometimes this little schnauzer that's next to me, Minette. And it's an exercise in acceptance. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. Which is better, a family home or an orphanage? It's a question I've been thinking about a lot lately. I've been listening to some Charles Dickens. I read a lot as a young person in late high school and in college. It's always fun. I've been listening to it when I drive around recently, some of the ones I had never read before. And the ideas of institutionalism, really big. Obviously, if you've ever heard of Oliver Twist, and and Dickens's own background really informed the way that he wrote, and he made a lot of social changes. He was a real social reformer for human beings, for the dignity and comfort, legitimate comfort of human beings, because his father was put in debtor's prison and he himself endured a long period of being a child laborer. I can't think of anybody who would argue with me that it is better to put children in orphanages than in family homes. And it's an interesting perspective when you think about it, because most people would say, obviously, an orphanage, assuming there are any anymore, I don't think there really are any, an orphanage is seen as a place of last resort. It's not the idea, ideal. It isn't. It, the ideal would be with a family that loves the child. Then the second would be with relatives who love the child. And then the third would be with foster parents who love the child. And after that, everything kind of goes downhill. But we really don't believe in orphanages anymore. We do believe in other institutions in a way that is mindless and very unquestioned. Obviously, since I've been talking a lot about homeschooling this fall, that's going to be one of them. And it's not so much that everybody can, should homeschool, although I think people that could often argue themselves out of it. But, and I guess that's my point. Homeschooling is more like the family home and school is more like the orphanage. If you really have no other options, then school is fine. With any luck, it works out well. But lots of years you do have options. Lots of times you do have options. The world is so much bigger, so much more interesting, and so much more flexible. And for some reason, with orphanages, we get it. And with schools, we don't. And to move on from that to what my guest and I talk about today, we do the same thing, the same sort of weird switch on and off with people who are disabled. Do they belong in institutions? We're actually a little bit more like with that sense of orphanages with them. Like if families are able to care for the individual, 
all the better. And if there are extenuating circumstances, and this person cannot be cared for by the people they love that love them, it is legitimate then to use an institution. So it's kind of funny. We, we tend to think of that. We're, we're not in a real hurry to get rid of institutions, but it does seem to be more of a, hey, it's, you know, the second choice for most people. Why not? But you could choose either. And I don't think, think that anyone would judge you harshly. I don't think that most people would say, if you have an individual in your family who requires, who's disabled and requires care, whether regardless of the kind of disability, I don't think anyone would judge you incredibly harshly for keeping them with your family. And I think most well-thinking people would not judge you harshly if you said there are circumstances that make it impossible and therefore this person is, we've put this person into care, into a care institution. Then we get to the elderly. And we're weird again around that, where it's pretty expected that the elderly will live out their time alone in an institution. And just like all the other kinds of care, it will be done by people that are woefully under paid for the job that they take. Interestingly, and I think we talk about this, uh, my guest and I, either we did last week or we will this week, talk a little bit about how care professions still are associated very much with women's work and women's pay. And I find it very interesting that that work, work that we do for our families, is completely omitted from productivity ratings, productivity data in the world, but certainly in this country. If you pay someone else to do it, it's included in productivity data. If you don't pay someone else to do it, it's not. Volunteer work is not included, no matter how unbelievably productive people are. And productivity data that reflects underpaid work undermines the data as well. In other words, if you are doing care work, which is some of the most difficult work to do, and you're being paid very little for that job, the data suggests that then you are not worth much. And yet, and yet, caring for children, teaching children, Caring for disabled adults and caring for the elderly is hard, hard work. The people that do that work mostly are doing it because they are so mission-driven. There is, to some extent, it certainly with the care of the elderly and the disabled, it may also be a case of a place where people with low amounts of training, but high amounts of caring can get jobs. Care, care backgrounds can get jobs, but they're not paid. They really aren't. They are, they're 
they're, they're the lowest paying jobs. They have very little in the way of benefits, sometimes none. And that is not how it is universally. Other countries do this better. And so can we if we decided to make that choice. But one of the things that's so interesting in the conversation with my guest is, and last week and this week, is about the fact that she took in all three types of care, technically four. Her cousin was a an orphan when she, you know, soon after she took her in, um, but an adult. But she looked at these options. Do you do this? Do you do this caring at home or do you bring it out to an institution? I think one of the things that I really want to question, one of the things that I really want more thought, more talk, more of a sea change in the way we view these kinds of issues is why the assumption that we will always institutionalize? Why not the assumption that home would be best with people who love them and that institutionalizing is something that is a legitimate choice should that be needed? And it's interesting to me the way that we flip-flop back and forth about yes, institution, no institution. Yes, institution, no institution. Because there is no doubt that school is an institution. That is how it's set up. There's also no doubt that a nursing home is an institution. That's how it's set up. And interestingly enough, nursing homes again, woefully underpaid staff, often don't have any real deep learning and dignity component to them. And actually, I would say that really is one of the things, one of the reasons why institutions inherently are something worth considering deeply before going into them is that they pretty universally lack a commitment to individual dignity. Many years ago, when my kids were still very young, I went to a family center that was local. It was quite nice. There were play spaces for different age groups, so infants, toddlers, and it was a little bit to get kids used to group activities to prepare them for school, sure. So the kids would all go play games, you know, and like the three and four-year-olds together and sit at little desks and have graham crackers and milk while adults could go upstairs and watch a lecture or just talk. Um, and my kids enjoyed it and it was fine and, and I liked it. What I really liked is there were a couple of times I went to lectures that were absolutely terrific. And one of them... <clears throat> One of those lectures was by somebody who lived locally who had been one of the original writers of Sesame Street, which blows my mind that I've met a writer, which blows my mind. That absolutely blows my mind that I have met and spoken with someone who was such a fundamental part of my childhood. 
And in fact, I think that would dishearten him. Because when we talked about Sesame Street, he talked about why he ultimately quit. Sesame Street was begun as children's educational television in a world that was really barren of children's programming to support child development, healthy child development. There was a, there were local shows that did some of that. It was Captain Kangaroo, and that was kind of cute. But more, it was like Howdy Doody show. It was just entertainment and ads, 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 ads to sell stuff to kids. So when PBS came out, and I'm very much a child of the Sesame Street generation, when PBS came out, they wanted a show that did not sell things to children and that instead tried as much as possible to make a learning environment, a supportive learning environment, really what I talk about all the time. What's interesting, though, is that the way that they conceived of it was for kids who are already parked in front of a television, in front of a barren wasteland of advertising television programming, we want to give them a better show, a better choice than what they have already. Where he said he got disheartened and ultimately quit was when he realized that parents who had previously been interacting with their kids and being fully present and establishing their own learning environments stopped doing that and started parking their kids in front of Sesame Street. So the institution had become an acceptable substitute for the loving home alternative that had been there before. He said they were, they were meant to be there for the kids who were neglected. And it became clear after a number of years that they were now, in fact, an inadvertent cause of neglect. Because parents felt like, well, that's fine. They're getting their education. It's fine if they just watch this. And then that was hours of the week and the day that those parents who normally, if, if, if Sesame Street hadn't been around, those would have been curious, attentive, interactive parents. And now they weren't. And it's easy to slam parents, for sure. It's an easy thing to do. God knows the world does it nonstop. But it was also a very interesting observation that sometimes an institution is so convenient and will take the place of the hard work of care so effortlessly that we who walk around all the time saying you get what you pay for and who say, you know, if you buy quality, it'll last a long time, we often look at that and say, but quality takes work and feels hard and this is easier and it's good enough, and we slip into a place where the institution takes over 
much like schools, in loco parentis, in place of the parent. And then with our disabled families and our elderly family members, we do the same thing again. And I don't even have a huge moral high ground to talk about this. I could never have taken care of my parents because it was very, very, very difficult for many, many reasons to live with them or be in close proximity for any length of time. But I still think that it would have been fine to have a sense of, oh, these two things are done roughly equally and expected to be, you're expected to choose among these utterly legitimate choices instead of the way it is now, which feels very much like, oh, of course, you're only going to go with the institutionalized choice. How strange of you to ever consider not. I think in the end, that's really what it is, is a triumph of choice and a triumph of legitimizing all the choices. Because as it is right now, we often reject choices, we often limit choices, we often act like there aren't choices, and then we kind of pile garbage on all the choices and the people who make them. And that's not something we really need to do. Next up, part three of my conversation with photographer and art professor, Cheryl Adams. When you first sort of hear a thumbnail, so, so um, a mutual acquaintance had, had put you and me together and she was like, you know, she's a single parent, she's working, homeschooling. Oh, and she also <laughs> took care of a family member who had Down syndrome for the final was it year was it two years of her life and and it becomes like this oh my god what this woman is holding up but what you're describing is the ways in which it makes this whole cooperative there's something really beautiful about it being like it's not a burden it's an it's a different kind of opportunity it really is it's gorgeous it's just beautiful to hear about you know, and, and it's, it's funny because, so my mom, you know, I had to postpone today because my mom had this doctor's appointment and I was trying to reschedule it, but then I realized I'm like, no, I have to do it today because my mom lives, she's still in the assisted living. In June, we moved her downstairs to a mem- the memory care unit. Mm. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's last December, but I mean, she's 90. So like being diagnosed at 90, I don't want to say like, it's not difficult, but it's significantly less difficult. Yeah. Anyway, bottom line is my mom, before all this, the last time my mom left the assisted living was for my cousin's funeral in March, because my cousin passed away on March 2nd. We had her funeral at the end of the week. We went into quarantine the following Friday. That was it. The state shut down. So in some ways we lucked out because we were still able to get family together and have a funeral. And that was, that was a gift. But all of a sudden people kept on saying like, how is pandemic for you? I'm like, 
the change in our lives is not this shutdown. The change in our lives is Susan's gone. We were were grieving. We easily spent the first month to two months just in this place of like, well, now what do we do? You know, because you were always accounting for her. Like, even if she was in her day program or she was with one of my caregivers, you were always accounting for her. Right. And we were all were like, it wasn't just me. Like my daughter was always like, well, where's Susie? Where's, you know, where's Susie going to be at this time? Like, what, like, is everybody accounted for? Do we know where Susan is? (laughs) So yeah, that was like, that was our big shift. But now the shift is my mom, we were planning on having my mom come live with us too, because she was getting to that place where like, we just don't feel like it's safe for her to be in assisted living. Mm. And then the pandemic hit and it put off like, you know, I need to do some construction on my house and it put everything back, but we're still in this trajectory for my mom to come live with us because, you know, my kids, they want her here. Like they Mm. want to take care of my mom because I mean, she's my mom. She's a, she's delightful. Like she's really funny. And even with her memory issues, she's still pretty, she's still awesome. Like she can, she's very sarcastic, cracks lots of jokes, understands that her memory's going. So she's in that place where caregiving for her, it's still, it's going to be hard, but it's not, it's still going to be fun. Yeah. (laughs) And it's still my mom. Like we still want to spend like this time with her. And I think that's the other thing too, that's really kind of hit me. And it all ties in, in my opinion, to homeschooling and how education has become institutionalized, how the caregiving of our children in the early years has become institutionalized and how the caregiving of our elderly has become institutionalized and how the caregiving of even my cousin has become institutionalized. And we, Susan, we were fortunate that we were able to take her because I homeschooled because of the way my life was set up. I was the relative who was able to take care of her without changing my life all that much. Like I still worked. I still kept all my photography clients. I still worked at RISD. I did not teach out of my house anymore. Like that was just too much, Mm. you know, but I did also, I had, I earned a stipend from my family for taking Mm. care of her to, you know, cover our expenses. And so again, it kind of, it, it was a win for everyone. I mean, it was a win for so many reasons. And when people are like, Oh, like, that must have been so hard. I'm like, well, sure, there are parts of it that are really hard, but for every piece of life that you could be like, well, this was really hard, <laughs> you could be like, but this was amazing, you know, but yeah. this was so amazing. And I used to, you know, especially when she first came to move in with us, I used to tell people, I'm like, life is hour by hour. Like it's not even day to day, it's hour to hour. So you'd have this one hour of the day that was really, really hard. But I'd be like, yeah, but this hour is over. And now the next hour is coming <laughs> and the next hour is going to be genius. Huh. It was true. It was like for every hour that kind of sucked, you had two or three hours of like brilliance or like I have all these little videos of like, you know, my kids having these random dance parties, like in the (laughs) living room. And Susan would get legitimately depressed because, you know, she lost her dad who was like her closest companion very suddenly, you know? And then her mom lived at the assisted living and I'd bring her over and she'd spend a lot of time with her mom, but her mom passed away a year after my uncle and Susan a year after her mom. And you know, my cousin was very sweet. Like we'd go to the nursing home where my aunt was and, you know, she would sing all these Mary songs. Like they knew all these Mary songs and she would (laughs) sing like all the songs to her. And, but you know, then she lost her mother who was the second person she was closest to in life. She was, 
she lived in the same house for 51 years and she had to uproot, move to my house, change her entire life. And she did it. And that was the thing. People yeah. are like, oh, it must be so hard for you. I'm like, hard for me. I was like, what about <laughs> her? Like, I've just yeah. seen your whole life. Like, our whole life has changed. And, like, how much trauma, like, that must have, how traumatic that had to have been for her. And to also lose the ability to, you know, because, again, the dementia, um, the tumble downhill, especially after her mom passed away, was pretty quick. And, mm she started losing a lot of expressive language. She just couldn't pull the words anymore. And so to not even be able to tell you like what she was feeling at the time, that was, that was hard. But again, yeah. like, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And I would love to still have her with us, you know, and my kids too. Like we still, we still will quote her all the time and listen to like Aww. her playlist. And it's such an astonishing setup. And it's interesting because a lot of times I talk with people about how it's kind of a mistake, the idea that, you know, when people go, I'm not a teacher, that you're you're not imparting, you're not being the teacher in front of the classroom, you're creating a learning environment and supporting that as much as possible. What I think is really interesting about your story, aside from the fact that it's beautifully unique, is the way that you were going well beyond that learning environment and creating this community and loving environment that is, you had to pull it out of nothing. There's no, there's no template for this. It's not expected. There's no social sort of support for this, this idea, which is kind of interesting because honestly, that's true of homeschooling too. When you sort of realize, wait a minute, I can, it's almost Harold and the purple crayon. I have my purple crayon and I'm just going to start drawing the entire building. And I felt like that with homeschooling. It's really interesting to hear this whole, like I, I, it just, this, this entire other room on that other building on that of a place where care can happen for people who needed it who were close to you and how much it enriched your family as well yeah because all of that's learning it is such it was it was such deep learning and I gotta tell you like you talk about like homeschooling there was no direct academic instruction happening for those two years. I can yeah. be straight up honest about that. Every once in a while, yes. And during those two years, I can tell you, we listened to a lot of podcasts in the car that spawned a lot of dialogue and a lot of conversation. We visited places all over Rhode Island, exploring like Rhode Island history and other, you know, we ended up because we were traveling to Salem all the time. We listened right. to Unobscured by Aaron Mankey and did a deep dive into the witch trials. And yeah. the learning just looked different. And I yeah. think that's, you know, again, institutionalized learning. If you were like quiz my kids on certain things, I suppose they may or may not be able to answer you, but they would know how to find the information. Yes. Like, oh, I've never heard of that, but let me look it up. Yeah. But again, the the link to all of it too is where homeschooling kind of, I think, helped me in this caregiving journey too, was that you realize, like, I can't even tell you, and this happened again at my mom's doctor's appointment today, how many times, like, even our own physician was like, well, it looks like it's getting hard, time to go to a group home. And I was like, 
why on earth are you, you know, and it wasn't just the doctor. It was like, you know, my cousins, sometimes my other family was like, mm-hmm. well, if it gets too hard, the group home I was like, okay, first of all, what you need to understand about group homes in the state of Rhode Island is that the highest pay rate for a person working in a group home is $11 an hour. Wow. Like, that is not enough money for the type and amount of human service work you are doing, taking care of my person. And there are the people who are in those. And first of all, what the state explained to me was that there are plenty of beds in group homes. They mm. can't staff them because it's not a living wage. You cannot right. pay people right. to change adult diapers. And in some cases you're putting yourself at physical risk because, you know, I mean, my cousin was not violent at all, but there are a lot of people who are adults with disabilities who, because they can't express themselves, they do use physical violence to either injure themselves or other people. And you're not paying people enough to do that work. You're not paying them enough to lift compliant people. No. And, you know, and these are people. And so my cousin was in an incredible day program, Resources for Human Development in Cranston. The pandemic basically uh, has, it's a corporation. There are a few different locations. There's one in Boston. I think one in Philly. The Providence location is closed as of December because they just financially couldn't stay afloat. But oh my God, it was an arts-based day program only. And when I tell you that the staff there was like an extension of my family, I mean, I'm still in touch with some of the people who worked with Susan. These are people who like made my life and Susan's life, like they enhanced her life in so many ways in the last year that she was alive. Because these are people who are working for crappy money and doing God's work. I mean, I'm not yeah. religious by any stretch, but they are doing like this incredible work because yeah. they love it. And they it's love mission. The it's mission, not money. Yeah. You know, and again, it was an arts-based program. So it's all these artists, all these highly creative people, uh, musicians, visual artists, theater people who are creating programming for adults with disabilities to be able to express. And like, I got to tell you, some of the work that some of the drawings and paintings, they were awesome. They were so beautiful. I'd be like, oh my God, I need that. And, you know, they'd be on my refrigerator. And, you know, and sometimes you walk into, I think any, whether it's a program or like you walk into a nursing home and everybody's, my father was in a nursing home for the last year of his life. And you walk into that common room where everybody sits for the day and you're like, oh God, it's so depressing. Yeah, man, you'd walk into RHD and you'd be like, I'm not leaving <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm staying for the day. Like, do we have to go? Because I just want to hang out here because the staff were happy. The clients were happy. It was just it was a happy place, you know, and um, it's it's hard like this institution. And so the problem becomes, though, for families is that because I, I had to legally become my cousin's guardian for other reasons. Once I became her guardian, I was no longer eligible for, so because these group homes can't hire staff, there's a whole new kind of programming and living, which is better, I think, called the shared living provider. You're basically fostering, families are basically fostering adults with disabilities in their homes. Mm. So instead Mm. of being in a group home situation, you're living in a family home, which is what Susan was doing. I was essentially, we were essentially her shared living provider, but because if you are a parent or a sibling, you're not eligible for payments from the state, which I kind of understand, but not really. Uh, yeah. And what, because I was her cousin, I could have, but I would have, I was still, I was 
the amount I could go on and on about the system and how broken it is <laughs> to get basic services. Yeah. But just to get some basic stuff fixed, like I didn't have time to like go through applying for all that. And there was family, again, the, there was family money that was allocated to me for a stipend. So I didn't need it, but there are families who do. And I don't care if you're a parent, I don't care if you're a sibling, I don't care who you are. If you are in that position of providing higher quality care because you know your person like you know I knew Susan yeah. I knew when she was having a good day a bad day I knew when she was walking out the door to go go to RHD whether or not to tell them like watch out she's in, she's in a mood this morning like yeah. make sure you put ACDC on on the way in and then you'll be fine if you're just joining us you're listening to nine to thrive a podcast about balancing work community and creativity Like when, when they're yours, like you're just going to, ha- it's like when they're your children, you're going to right. pay attention. You know, you know, you when know them. yeah, you know them, yeah. you're the expert on who they are. And I think, you know, even my mom being in assisted living, there are some of the CNAs who are just incredible. Like they, they, they care about my mom, like she is their family, but they're not. And they have limitations. There are things they cannot yeah. do for my mom. There are things that they're just not allowed to for litigation reasons. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a corporation, there's no money, but we've come to believe that somehow these experts, like there's expert care in a nursing home, there's expert care in a group home. And in some cases, maybe that's true. And in some cases, families have no choice. Like this is what they have to do in order to, you know, survive either whether it be financial or whether it be emotional. Like if you're a parent who's been taking care of an adult with disabilities, who isn't like my cousin, who's sweet and lovely and kind and funny, but somebody who's more violent and nonverbal, and you're just physically and emotionally exhausted from that level of caregiving, you know, there's like whatever you choose as a parent or a caregiver that you know is best for your person. Like that's what you need to do. That's what it is. Yeah. But especially taking care of, I think, elderly and disabled adults, we've made it as a culture very hard for family members to be able to do it because you have to stay home and we have, you know, public school, we have other resources when your children, when these, when children are children, but once they enter the adult world, it's entirely different. And even taking care of my mom, but then people believe people, most people are led to believe that, Oh, well, it's better. Like, you know, people are like, your mom's much better off in assisted living. Don't even think about taking her home. I'm like, uh, I'm not sure I agree with you there. Yeah, I think yeah. that my mom would be much happier with people that, she, especially with memory issues, surrounded by people who she knows love her and are going to take care of her and trust her. And even if there comes a point where she does not remember my name, because I've been through this now with my father with dementia, my cousin with dementia, and now my mom, they may not remember your name, but they look at your face and they know you're the person who's going to stick up for them, advocate for them. Oh, yeah. We had a grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting your point too that, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna you can't have it both ways. If it's expertise, then it's time to pay them as if they're experts. Right. And the same goes for teachers, right? And the same goes for teachers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. To me it is all the same. It's like, well, I've worked in schools and I'm not sure that some of the teachers are more 
have more expertise than some of these parents, especially parents of kids with special needs. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Don't treat parents like they're the experts of their kids when we sit in meetings sometimes. And it's like, we need to like, let go of this idea that parents, or we need to help elevate parents yeah. to believing in themselves again, that no, 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 you do know. Okay. You do know better, or you do know you are your child's expert. You are capable of teaching them yourself. That's it's not. A, it's part of a bigger problem too, which is that the GDP of any country only includes paid work, <laughs> which is often to the detriment of women because they're in a lot of volunteer caring, elder care, child care, certainly homeschoolers. All of that is just omitted completely. <laughs> and then, of course, all this other expertise that also has a caring piece of it is underestimated because the pay is so small <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's awful i yeah. mean in nursing yeah. homes and assisted livings the cnas and we've seen this in pandemic right lowest paid medical yeah. workers in the country and these people are working especially now they are working their tails off i mean some yeah. people working in multiple facilities out of necessity in order for them to live and it, right. like i mean the human factor and this these jobs like the the connections that you're taking care of people, like real people with real lives, personalities and stories and real medical issues and like complexities that we just don't, we're not, it's a level of expertise that we are not given any credit for. We're certainly not monetarily compensated for it. Yeah. And as your story with your cousin proves, not people, but people who inherently have value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They exist and therefore they have value. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even in my teaching before, like before I went to the, my last public school job, I worked in a really intense behavioral school and they made a huge difference in the way they contributed to my life. The community of my classroom was so meaningful to my life and I hope so meaningful to their lives that you know, again, it's why it kind of disappoints me that we don't see more people with disabilities out in the world because, you know, and elderly people, like I started recording my conversations with my mom yeah. because of the stories, like I learned about, uh, the women's, the women's army corps because of the conversation oh, yeah. I had with my mom. And I started yeah. talking about like how homeschooling, I did a deep dive into the whack because I was like, what, why did I not know about this? And then my kids learned about it through me explaining to them why I was so interested in it. And then today, you know, I took my mom out for this doctor's appointment, first time out of the building in six months. And of course, I take her after her doctor's appointment, we get a blueberry muffin and we go to the beach and it was warm enough that we were able to sit out on a bench at the beach. And my mom is like, you know, she loves the ocean. And she just starts telling the story about uh, a friend of the family from when she was growing up who went to World War II. And she recalled, you know, all these details. Oh, yeah. Name. Dementia's only recent memories. It's wild. Oh, it's in its pockets, too, because my mom has a hard time recalling my father, which surprises me. Mm. Um, you know, they were married for almost 60 years. So and she doesn't remember me as a child. Like she often oh. she always knows my name. She always recognizes me as family. She calls me her daughter. But then as she starts getting deep into storytelling, I shift to becoming one of her cousins and we were, we grew up together. Uh, so, you know, and that so now you're, you're, you're talking about World War, World War anyway, II. I, yeah, I derailed, so, yeah. 
she starts telling this incredible story about World War II. And, and my son was there and he's listening. He's like, he's like, Nana, this is a really great story. And we've just let go of this idea that, you know, our elders are our storytellers and the value of this storytelling on it's like living history. Right. And, right. you know, we're going to all these, like we're going to textbooks and these very technical and I don't know, I don't just kind of blot like history is sort of delivered to us in like a series of facts. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, sure. But you know, again, it's like looking at U S history from different perspectives. Like we're always looking at the perspective of the conqueror versus who conquered and, you know, and the pushback against, well, we shouldn't talk about slavery because that makes, you know, us look like an evil country. It's like, well, we kind of were like, you know, let's, let's accept that. Let's talk about it and, you know, not move on, but let's talk about that. But this, the storytelling that even you would get from, you know, my cousin too, that hearing these different perspectives, we don't give enough time anymore. Just sitting at the beach, like, I think the three of us were really quiet for a while. And then my mom just started telling this story and it's like, wow, this is brilliant. Yeah. Just having time to visit and have those ex- human experiences are so first person history it really first person is. accounts that's yep. the best kind there is yep and you know that's the value like that's there's so much human value in our elders and we're missing so much by sticking them in institutions and not and now we have no access like if your person is in an institution like you've got to make an appointment and in some places you can't see them and right. how much of that valuable i mean that's why i want my mom to come home i'm like I've only got this time in my life is this big, you know, people are like, Oh, it's so much work. I was like, so what? There were CNAs in there doing this work. Like I want to be able to do this work and I want to hear my mom's stories. I want her to crack jokes at me and yell at me when I don't get all the shampoo out of her hair for the day, or (laughs) she wants to accuse me of stealing her clothes. Have at it. Like I'll, I'll be happy to take all of it because it'll be time that, we all get to have with this amazing woman and we do, we place it, we devalue that. We've just put, we've devalued that human, human life that everyone has a value and a purpose for being here. We can learn so much from each other, just talking to each other like this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And that is such a beautiful place to, to wrap it up. Cheryl Adams. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed and learned so much from talking to you today. Well, thanks. I hope I kind of stayed on topic. I felt like I kind of went all over the place, but it's all good. But that's kind of homeschooling, right? It really is. It's these rabbit holes that you dive down on a daily basis, sometimes an hourly basis. And it just, it becomes less about the content of learning and about the learning process itself. And that's where our institutions, we've dehumanized across all institutions. And, um, And that's not to say that all the institutions are bad. They have a form, they have a function, they have a purpose, but that we don't need to rely on them all the time. Like it's okay to be self-reliant. Like we got this, you know? Yeah. Love it. Thank you again. This has been terrific. The book I'm going to talk about today is called The Art of Possibility by Rosamond Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander. It's a pretty fun read. I really enjoyed it. She's a therapist of some kind, and he is a conductor of the Boston Philharmonic and a teacher at Berkeley and a cellist, I think, but mostly a conductor. The emphasis of the book 
is one that is dear to my heart anyway. Obviously, the choosing of possibility, the choosing of potential over the constant hammering away at perceived deficits. I have talked before about people like Oliver Sacks and talked about how what he did that was so extraordinary was to look at people who had what most of us would consider unsurmountable handicaps. And he looked at them with dignity and talked about, well, what can people do? And then how can we encourage them to do better? One of the things about this, and one of the things I've learned in the last couple of years, is how unbelievably, desperately damaging contempt is. Self-contempt, peer contempt, teacher contempt, authority contempt. It shuts down our ability to learn. It makes it so that, it, honestly, it traumatizes us. And trauma is one of the things that shuts down our ability to learn. And it's, it feels like such a loss of real potential. It feels like such a loss of innovation, of happiness, that the more I recognize it, the more I feel compelled to point it out. But more importantly, the more I see of ways to do an end run around it, and to leave that kind of BS behind and concentrate on what we can do to actively help one another to push against or downgrade the contempt. Or maybe another way to say it is to really counteract and mm, it's funny because contempt comes from a place of pain as well. Hurt people hurt people. So adjective, then verb. So one of the most compassionate things we can do is see that and then be unaffected by it and not allow it to affect others. So The Art of Possibility is one of those books that really lays out a roadmap for us to champion the possibilities over the blockages over the things that we think are insurmountable, especially because so much of our things that we consider deficits, so much of the things that we consider unsurmountable turn out to be belief, not reality. It is, in fact, a reality we've sort of constructed for ourselves. So having others around us that challenge that reality or encourage us to question it, encourage us to say, is it is it truly, truly, truly a, an unchangeable reality? Is it like gravity? Or is it a belief where there was something that was difficult for us and we have made it completely unfightable? Have we made it completely overwhelming for us to never do this thing that we, ha we wanted to learn from, that we wanted to pursue? So this is an actual roadmap, which I super appreciate. And a lot of the stuff has to do with learning to look at what we're doing differently. One of the things I love is a concept called the contribution game. So the contribution game means that rather than focusing on our own accomplishments, instead declare ourselves to be a contribution. 
a contribution to others, a contribution to our own lives. It's an interesting word. I've been thinking a lot about this actually lately is just changing some of the words that we use. And this is one of them. When we become a contribution, imagine being at work and becoming a contribution and thinking of others from the standpoint of their contributions, not their productivity, not their gifts or what they do in spite of other things, but them as a contribution. And honestly, I see this very clearly in the conversation I just had where Susan was a contribution to the world and a contribution to the family. And it was much easier to see her as such when you really focused on her being alive and a person of dignity was central. Instead of saying, oh, well, this thing was hard for her, so she wasn't, she wasn't really real. She wasn't really valuable. So this idea of contribution and valuing the contribution is one that I think is worth a little change in how we talk about stuff. Imagine the contribution of your kids to your family. How does their presence, how does their humor, how does their wondering about the world contribute to the project that is a family, the team that is a family? But it all starts and it all continues by us thinking of ourselves as contributions. It also helps in terms of discipline because it depersonalizes. One of the real things that happens when you're a parent is how, well, first of all, how tired we are, how much we know these people, the buttons we all can push in each other, and then the personalization of unacceptable behavior. How can you do this to me? This kind of, this, this kind of constant assumption that behavior that needs to be corrected is somehow you should know better. How can you do this to me? How can you show our family like this? If you think in terms of contribution, it lightens that because honestly, kids behavior just needs to be corrected and it doesn't have to be done by shame. It just has to be about getting along in this team and contributing to the team and the ways in which behavior is affecting others. So it's it's a lovely it's a lovely framing of behavior. But then the piece where I think this book is super genius, I don't have a, a long time to talk about it. I encourage you to read it. Maybe I'll bring it up at another time because there's it's a really deep book. But this concept where, okay, well first of all, the part that really affected me were the parts from Benjamin Zander. I thought Rosamond's Rosamond Stone Zander's stuff was really interesting, but he really got me because I grew up in classical music. I played violin and piano. I sang. I was in orchestras and string quartets and lots and lots and lots of activities like that. And there is an immense pressure on kids and classical music that this is a kid career path, that there's a, you know, it's, it's much like the idea of, of kids and basketball, that somehow they're going to end up in the majors. There's, there's not a real path really assumed for people to become adults who enjoy doing this kind of thing, who continue doing it as adults. It's all professional, quasi-professional. So you end up with this bunch of very intense, frequently very adult parent-pushed kids and a lot of anxiety. And a lot of times, even if the parents aren't pushing, sometimes if a kid is super talented, the teacher is vicariously living through, living through them and putting on a colossal amount of pressure. So these kids are often super high strung is what I'm saying. And 
this guy is a teacher and a conductor of these kids. And he started doing this thing that I have found so deeply comforting. And I have worked with clients actually about this concept. He starts out by saying, in September, you have an A in this class. You already have it. It is guaranteed to you. I would like you to write me an essay about how you got that A. Wow, does that ever change the game? Kids write these and young people write these heart-rending. I mean, I was tearing up at some of them. Essays about the things they know they want to work at to be happier or have better mastery of the things that they do. Well, if I have an A, then I got it because I really worked on slowing down my practice sessions and concentrating on this and that. They know, they know, as long as they understand what they're there for, they know what they need to do. And it also helps allow you to know what you need to do. If you already know, you're not going to fail. Imagine being so supported at work that you knew you were not going to fail. If that is the baseline, from the beginning, it isn't a test. We're not going to test you. These are the agreed upon things. This is the job. We framework to the job so that someone can do it. We expect you to bring in your own in innovation. You're not going to fail because we're going to support you. How do you do this job now? You will radically change how you do the job and you will be and see yourself as a contribution to that business. Now think about it as being in a family. So often we are sold to, really that's a lot of it actually, it's super easy to sell to people who feel bad about themselves. You can read a history of advertising and it is abundantly clear and nobody hides it. It's not a hidden thing. Feel bad about armpit hair and shave it. That's that's how we sell razors. Feel bad about a perceived smell and buy this thing. That's how we sell it. You may never have smelled, but you're so afraid of smelling like that that now you do it. It's very, very clear in marketing and advertising that that is a lot of what you do. You make people feel insecure and sell them something to feel more secure. Tons and tons and tons and tons of parent things are out there to make you feel insecure, to make you feel like a failure. You look at the places where your own parents did not meet your needs and you are sure that you're going to not replicate any of those. Some of the things they did, probably overt, I know I have a list, but some of the things they did were because they were human beings and stuff happens, a result of their own trauma before them. But we are incredibly hard on ourselves. And the harder we are on ourselves, there's the contempt. We do not become better parents by being harder on ourselves. We do not become better parents by being harder on our kids. Not intuitively, but beautifully, we become better parents not by being super permissive. That's not what I mean by easy on. I mean by giving ourselves an A. Good enough is good 
enough. Perfection is not attainable. That is why that word is there. But connection is attainable. If we make a contract with ourselves that we will contribute and we will keep going back in a dynamic relationship to furthering our understanding, then we can start taking innovative risks. We can start being way more creative with ourselves and with each other because we don't have to pay for our existence as parents or as human beings with perfection. We already have an A. It's kind of what I say when I talk about how attentive and curious parent is the job description. Checking out and not being interested are signs of distress and trauma, ones we often don't truly pay attention to, but would be happier if we did, because the kids also don't need to be perfect in order to justify their existence as human beings that are deserving of dignity. When you can lighten the burden of contempt, when you can give yourself an A and give the people around you, your kids, your coworkers, when you can give them an A, you open up to exactly what this book is called, The Art of Possibility. And everybody gets better from that. So much easier for us to actually find the things we need to learn to do better or more satisfactorily for ourselves if we do not carry around a weight of shame. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.